You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Thank you so much, worship team. Can we give the worship team a round of applause? Thank you for leading us so, so well. Wonderful. Well, it's a joy to be with you and opening the Word of God for us today. And as Pastor Martin has said, we are in a series right now on the book of Daniel. Can everyone say Daniel? Daniel, the book of Daniel. And we heard in the last few weeks, we heard of of Daniel, whose name means God is my judge. This incredible man of God and his friends. And we, we kind of tracked a little bit of their journey this these, these young men who were Israelites, the called out people of God, the ones who were set apart for his purposes, and they'd been brought into captivity, into the kingdom of Babylon, the empire of Babylon, thrust in one of the most decadent empires or kingdoms that the world has ever seen. Sometimes we think that we kind of live in a generation that is just worse than has ever been. Let me tell you, it was hard for these guys. They lived in a culture of extremes. And they, as the people of God, they had a clear way to live. As Israelites and as ones who were God's people and a set-apart people, he'd made it really clear how he wanted them to live. And the pressure was on in that space, in this space of Babylon, to conform to what the kingdom and the king in that space wanted. But we've seen how they stood firm, how they made choices in the midst of pressure not to conform, to live a different way that was honoring to God. I love this quote from a pastor in America. It's a a guy called Scotty Smith. And he says this, it's a prayer really. I used to read the book of Daniel as a Christian survival manual for believers waiting to be lifted from the face of the earth. But that's not the way you wrote the book. I now realize that Daniel is a testimony to your commitment to redeem your every nation, people, and to make all things new, even in Babylon. It's your intent to extend the transforming presence of your kingdom wherever you send us, in every part of the world and every sphere of life. Jesus, free us to live and love as Daniel did as conduits of your mercy and grace. Gospel presence, not fearful paranoia, is the order of the day. I love those words. Beautiful, because the truth is, the reality that we're trying to help understand is that we don't live in Israel. We live in Babylon. We live in a world that is compromised. And there are so many good and brilliant things, but there are so many things that will ask us, will we dishonor God? Will you bow before a different king? Last week, Pastor Esther unpacked how these men had an identity in God, but that there was an enemy in Nebuchadnezzar and his court that was seeking to steal and distort that identity, as Pastor Martin alluded to earlier at the start of this service, where we began. And the truth is, we, as the people of God, now in this day, we have an identity in Christ. Amen? A truth of what he has won for us, what he says of us, that we are the called out ones, the redeemed. In the book of Jude, it's just a really small book 
in the New Testament. I love it. It's got one of the most powerful introductions. It's written this, to the beloved of God the Father, to the ones called and kept in Christ Jesus. What a start to a book. Not just, hey, Billy, how are you? And that wasn't just for them. This is for us too. Beloved of God, the Father, to the called out ones, the ones invited to have a seat at his table, the ones invited and a place prepared for you in eternity. God's already there plumping the pillows on your bed in heaven. Wow. And the ones who are kept for Christ Jesus, the ones who are held by him, And some of us, we need to receive that today because the enemy, he goes after our identity. He goes after who we are. And I'm going to move on in a minute, but I just really feel in my heart, I need to remind some of us today of something really important. And you see, Daniel, he knew many things about God and his name meant that God was his judge. He got that. He knew that God was his final authority. He knew that one day he was going to stand before the maker of heaven and earth and be accountable for his life. But he also knew something else. This man knew that he was loved by this almighty God. In Daniel 10, I I haven't got time to go there now, and scholars debate whether it was Jesus or an angel. There's this heavenly being that comes to tell Daniel twice in Daniel 10. He says, you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. And some of us, maybe you don't need to hear anything else I say today, but you need to hear Whatever you have walked this week, whatever you are carrying in your heart, whatever you think that I don't see, know that he sees and he tells you, you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. When we live our life in response to the love of God, it changes everything. When we live our life in response to what he says about us, it changes all things. He loves you. He loves you. He's for you. I'm just going to take a moment to pray for that right now. Why don't you just close your eyes with me? Just wonder today, maybe if you're here and you're struggling to grasp or feel a sense that God loves you, I just want you to just maybe just wave at me and I'm just going to pray for you. If you're here today and you're like, I'm not even sure that's true. Wonderful. Thank you. Some more, any more. Just wave at me as your response to God to say, yeah, thank you. Father, we pray Paul's prayer. We pray right now that, Lord, these precious ones, the ones who you died for, who you demonstrated your love for on the cross, oh God, that they would begin to grasp how high and deep and wide your love is for them. Holy Spirit, we pray that even now as this message goes on and and we talk about worship, oh God, would our response be to your love, King Jesus? So Lord, we welcome you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. We're going to explore now through the book of Daniel. We're going to turn to Daniel 3. So if you've got a Bible or a device, we're going to read the whole of Daniel 3. So please there with me. It will come on screen. And I know sometimes when we say that, you put your device back in. But get this out so you can read it on your device too. We're going to read from Daniel 3 as we continue in our series, Kingdom Bringers, Carrying God's Culture in a Kingdom of 
compromise. So Daniel 3, this is on the back of Daniel interpreting a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he is impressed and he is glad by this. And so he brings Daniel and promotes him to a position of trust. And at the end of chapter 2, we see that he also here promotes Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to read this for us. It says this, Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Jorah in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled. I don't know how many more provincial officials there are. It's quite a long list anyway. Assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They have neither Serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image, I made very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet, excuse me, in amazement, and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and their was no smell of fire on them. Is everyone still with me? We're nearly there. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save this way. For no other God can save this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, well done. I know you were listening through every single word. And that is me finished. Wow. What a story. We love to do these stories in children's work, not just because there's some great visuals, because of the power. The power in this narrative. For those making notes this morning, my title is simply this. Who will you worship? Who will you worship? Turn to your neighbor and say, who will you worship? I've said this so that we can go from here asking ourselves this question moving forward from here. But the question I really pose to you right now is, who do you worship? Because right now in this moment, you might not think it, but all of us worship something. Why is that? It's because worship is adoration. It's the orientation of our lives. And all of us have our lives set on something or someone. There are numerous definitions of the word worship, and one that I love is this. Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. It's to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. 
How does the Bible define worship? Well, there's lots that the Bible says about worship and about praise, but one that we love that you may know that I need to bring us to to help us understand this more is Romans 12, verse 1 to 2. It says this. This is Paul speaking to the church in Rome. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He's saying here, in view of his mercy, in view of what Jesus has done on the cross, live your lives as sacrifice to me. That is your true and proper worship. And these young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they understood this. And the first point that I want us to catch this morning is simply this. Our lives are worship. Our lives are worship. It's not just our singing on a Sunday or a saying, yes, I'm a Christian. All of these things are great. And they're part of our lives, part of our worship. But the truth that we need to catch if we're going to live as part of God's kingdom culture and carrying his presence and carrying his heart is that everything is worship. It's the meditation of our hearts. It's the confession of our mouths. It's our posture. It's our attitude. It's the work of our hands. Everything is worship. What happens in this room is worship. What happens in your bedroom is worship. What happens on the football pitch, that can be worship. It took me a while to get that right. I'm still not there. You've played with me on the football pitch. Don't tell any tales. Thank you. Our lives are worship. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because the details matter. We can come and we think, okay, if I just... I'll get my worship done on a Sunday and then I'll go into my week. But this text and the word of God in Romans 12, it tells us that your week is your worship. What happens between now and next Sunday is just as much your worship as what happens here today. Does that make sense? And this is so important because imagine these young men, that they're called... The the music strikes up. I don't know what the harp, the lyre, and other things sound like. I feel like it sounds like ABBA, probably. I'm not sure. Or classic FM. The music sounds. King Nebuchadnezzar says, when the music sounds, you need to bow to this golden idol. It doesn't tell us what the idol is. I I reckon it's probably Nebuchadnezzar himself. I don't know. It could be another god. But this image, it represented another God that was not Yahweh. And he said, when this music sounds, everyone in the kingdom, when you hear it, you must bow. When you hear this music, and it's, because if you don't, I'm going to kill you. That's strong. So the music sounds, and everyone around them, everyone says that they bowed. 
And so what became obvious was the, the ones who stood. In the pressure to conform, in the pressure to bow to the idols of the world, it was the ones who stood, who stood out. What we can't forget there is that they weren't the only Israelites in town. I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I can imagine that there were many Israelites too bowing to this false god. Bowing to this image. See, they themselves would say, yes, I'm a follower of Yahweh. Yes, I'm God's set apart people. But when it came to the crunch, they bow before another God. You see, it's not just the confession of our mouths. It's not just us identifying as followers of Jesus. It's our lives. You see, these young men, they could have compromised. They could have said, okay, I'm just going to pretend it's Yahweh. This image of gold, no one's going to know. This doesn't really matter that much. You know, we've done so well, well in chapter one. We didn't eat the defiled foods. We did great. But that wasn't their heart. They said, we can't do this because we will only worship Yahweh. You see, the truth is, church, there is a fight for your worship. There is a fight for your worship, for your love, for your attention, for your devotion. See how clear it is here, Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't bow down and worship, I'll kill you. Then if we come to the New Testament, we can just see how the enemy is at work. Because we see in Matthew 4, account of Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus has been led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. And at that point, the enemy comes to try and tempt him. And he comes and that the devil himself, he comes to Jesus and he says, turn this rock into bread. And Jesus says, no. And, and then he says, throw yourself down and God's angels will protect you. And he says, no, I'm not going to test God. We're like, what's really going on here? But I think we see a glimpse at the end of these verses of what the devil is really after. It says this, it's going to come on the screen in verses 8 and 9. It says this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He says, all this I will give to you. He said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There is a fight for your worship because it is your life. And there is a fight for your life because there is an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy all that God has for you. And if he can distract your worship, if he can bring the attention to himself or, or distort it to something else, then Jesus is off the throne of your heart. And I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to live in that place. I want to live with Jesus enthroned in my heart. So interesting because the enemy, he comes to Jesus and he says, here's what I'll give you. Nebuchadnezzar says, if you don't worship, here's what I'm going to take from you. And the truth is that things that might command our attention, they might promise either way. The world shouts big, this is what we'll give to you. This is what pursuing riches, this is what you're going to get. 
Some of us, we just have a fear of missing out. If you don't do this, you're going to miss out. You're a weirdo. Gosh, I remember the tensions and the struggles giving my life to Jesus, age 15, 16. Some choices I made, they made me stand out. And I, I didn't look great for it because the culture that I was in was compromised. And that was a challenge. And yet God, he met me in that place. And if you are struggling in this grapple of who will I worship, what will I bow down to? This promise is big or it feels like it's going to take away from me. Then I commend you today. I exhort you today. Stand firm, church. Stand firm. See, these men understood their lives were worship and a key truth that we must understand so simple and yet so important is that worship belongs to God alone. Worship belongs to God alone. No matter what you can give, devil, no matter what you can seek to take, world, he is my God. And the truth is, we all worship something, as I've said, and if we're not worshiping the creator, then we are trying to put something else in his rightful place. And the Bible calls this idolatry. Sounds like an old-fashioned word, but it means an idol, an image, something else in the place of God. Tim Keller says this, what is an idol? It is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give to anything you seek to give, to give you what only God can. Satisfaction, comfort. I don't know what it might be or look like in your world. It's likely that it's not a giant golden image that you walk past on the way to work. I've not seen any in Coventry. But what are some things that can sit in this place? Well, some of our biggest potential idols Really simply, it can probably fall into three categories, money, pleasure, or power. If money matters most, it's kind of a a get rich or die trying mentality. Jesus himself says, no one can serve two masters. If money is your master, then I'm not. Maybe you feel like the the key, the key in this is, it's going to be just to have more. And we just see slightly or or subtly that that money, this longing, this lusting for more, this seeing what's around us, this desire to have, to get, it sits on the throne of our hearts. It might be pleasure. When pleasure sits on the throne of your heart, the, the mentality is simply, if it feels good, do it. How huge this sentiment is in the world that we live in. If it feels good, do it. My desires over everything else. I want to satisfy this body. It can't be wrong. It's natural. This isn't what God says. So pleasure could sit on the throne of our heart. Power, maybe it's to be in control or to be seen by many, to win the approval of men or women, to feel some sense of control. And we see this longing, this lust for power to sit on the throne of our hearts. And we face this battle right now, today, over who gets our worship. Does anyone else feel that? 
maybe it's just me. You guys are just like super Christians. Every day I have to say no to these idols. Every day. When I get down from this stage and you stand in front of people and I stand before you now, my, my longing, my desire would be to, to win your approval. Yet Galatians says that if I live for the approval of man, I'm not a servant of Christ. So I'm going to get up here and preach what God wants me to preach. Not for your approval, I'm sorry. And I love your feedback. You know, if you've got nice things to say, say it. That's great. If you've not got nice things to say, just say it to the Lord. Say it to the Lord. But it's a real grapple, and so I have to come and get on my knees again. You know, what we consume is so symptomatic of our worship. What we watch, what we read, what we pour our lives into, the voices that we let shape us, they're all symptoms of our worship. And it's so interesting here, isn't it? It talks about the the power of music, not just the image that is seen, but also the things that are heard. Maybe you've never thought about what you listen to. Sometimes we can be so kind of what we see and that's what we have to manage, but also maybe we need to think about what we listen to. What is the soundtrack of our current culture? Well, I, I went online, I looked at the top 10 at the minute. I feel so out of touch, I had to look at the top 10. Two of the songs in the top 10, I just kind of went off the titles, I had a look at the lyrics. Two of the songs in the top 10, one's about catching their partner, cheating on them, and two is all about a one-night stand upon meeting someone in a club. You see, these songs, they tell a story. These songs are played by thousands, if not millions of people in this nation. People bop into these tunes. Someone mocking my bop with that laugh. (laughs) People letting their minds be filled. And listen, I don't want to appear holier than now. I'm not saying that all music that's not about Jesus is bad, but we have to think, church. Because what we consume, what we feed ourselves is symptomatic of our worship. Because our lives are worship. What you watch is symptomatic of your worship. What you read is symptomatic of your worship and what you listen to. We have to ask ourselves, what am I worshipping? I'm going to invite the band up as I come to a close this morning. I'm just going to encourage us to close our eyes for a moment. I'm just going to, I'm going to read some questions. And listen, there are good and perfect gifts from God. Relationships and good things that he's put in our lives. Things to enjoy. There's, there's work and purpose that he's put. But if these things sit on the throne of our heart, we have missed it. Matthew 6 says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. I want to ask us some questions this morning to help Holy Spirit come and assess our hearts. And we ask ourselves, what am I worshipping? Ask yourself today, what matters most to me? Where does all my time, energy, and money go? Where do I place my worth today? What voices are shaping my life? 
See, worship belongs to God alone. And in that place, when we profess him as king, we see something miraculous take place because when worship of the living God happens, when our lives are worshiped, we see that he comes and he starts to move. The king starts to move. When he's on the throne of your heart, there's, there's permission to say, God, I want you in my life. And these young men, they're thrown into the fire and there's, there's this heavenly being that meets them there. Maybe today you, you feel like you're in the midst of a fire. Let me exhort you. The, their confession was that he's going to save me, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to worship him. No church today that if you are in the fire, he is right there with you. That is a, a preach for another day, but some of you need to hear that today. There is room for miracles to take place. Things that, that how people bondage, they fall off and you walk freely. And he changes the script because others start to notice. When Jesus is Lord, when Jesus is King and your lives point to him, this madman King like Nebuchadnezzar, he said, they worship the true and living God. So my question today is there is one seat on the throne of your heart and who sits on it? Who do you worship? And I'm just going to invite us simply as we worship, just been considering this line before the Lord, just resonating with me that if we're going to stand in a culture of compromise, then we must live kneeling before Jesus. And this just shows two postures of the heart. If we're going to stand and walk in all that God wants for us, uncompromising, full of grace and full of truth, if we're going to live for Him, then we must stand with a posture of humility before Jesus and Jesus alone. We see that, that posture of worship in Daniel 3 that they knew even to an idol that their appropriate response was to fall before it. Doing this in a physical way is simply to say, you are high and I am low. And there is a reason, church, that it's called following Jesus because we say, I submit my right to lead. Jesus, you are the lead and I'm going to follow you. So I'm just going to invite you if you are able, and today your response is, Lord, you are the one I worship. You are on your throne. And I'm going to invite you in this place to kneel before him. Not before anyone else, but to kneel before him. And I'm going to pray. So if that's your heart response, then don't waste a moment to just kneel. Holy Spirit, come, we invite you.